Welcome to Get in the Herd, a podcast about addiction and recovery brought to you by the McShin Foundation. If you or a loved one are looking for real discussions about addiction, recovery, stigma, advocacy, and most importantly, hope, then stick around. Thanks for joining us. Now sit back and get ready for another great episode of Get in the Herd. And welcome to another edition of Get in the Herd, the McShin Foundation's award-winning recovery podcast. Uh, we're in the studio today with uh, co-founder and president, John Schenholzer. He's a special guest host with me. Uh, of course, we got Justin on the producing side over here. But our special guest today is Delegate Sally Hudson, and she is in Virginia's 57th District down in Charlottesville, um, or over in Charlottesville. And I believe this is, you're running for your second term, or is that correct right now? Uh yeah, so excellent. Welcome to the show. Um, definitely have a lot of questions for you, especially concerning two of the bills that you put into um, you put in last session. So we want to talk about HB twenty three hundred three, which would have, which would reclassify simple possession for drugs uh, and drug paraphernalia, and HJ five thirty, which would be which is a study. So tell us if you would please what that is and why you're doing that, and 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 welcome to the show. Yeah, well, first off, thanks for having me. I'm thrilled to be here today. And uh, thank you also for everything that you have done to spearhead this work in Virginia. We are so fortunate to have partners like you in all of it. Um, the, the bills that I put forth this session were all about trying to move us toward a more just and humane and scientifically sound approach to treating addiction and substance use. Um, we know right now in Virginia, we're in the middle of this big transition around cannabis but of course there are you know, many other substances out there in the world where our drug laws are outdated, if not downright draconian. Um, and so we've got a lot of work to do on a lot of other fronts. And that's what this bill was about, beginning to take those steps. Um, the first bill um, which failed was one that would have defelonized simple possession for all narcotics in Virginia. That means that we would end the felony penalty. Um, the, the maximum penalty um, for substance possession would be a, a misdemeanor, which means nobody could spend more than a year in jail. Um, and then I also put forward a study which would explore more broadly how do we continue to reduce those penalties, maybe decriminalize some of these substances altogether, and really assess the adequacy of substance use and addiction um, services in Virginia so that we can move off a model that is rooted in our jails and prisons and into something that is uh, more you know, embedded in our communities and where appropriate with our healthcare providers. That, that, that sounds a lot like uh, Portugal drug policies and the Portugal model. You must be familiar with that. Yeah, you know, we have um, partners overseas who have already moved in this direction, but we don't have to look that far for models of, of states that have already done this. Um, simple possession is already a misdemeanor in a lot of states, um, places like Oklahoma and Colorado and Connecticut, you know, progressive bastions like Mississippi and South Carolina. So this is really a movement with bipartisan support. I think a lot of no people know that the way that we deal with drugs in this country is behind the times that we're not really serving anybody well. So it's, you know, it's excited to be working on something that really resonates with people of all stripes. This is not a blue team, red team thing. This is about, um, you know, looking at people as people and trying to, to do right by them. You know, I, I wrote a uh, OPAD one time in the paper and I said, man, Virginia is poised to get it right. They, they have an opportunity to really be a national leader in drug policies and how we have flipped uh, 
the criminalization of, of addiction and put it in the healthcare field and put it in the hands of people with lived experience. So um, I'm just, I'm so glad to hear you speak this way. So, so glad to have you on the show with Nathan and be part of this. Nathan's over here beaming with thoughts. He's got that look, man. <laughs> well, you know, anytime I, I, I meet somebody who gets into this work, I have to wonder where that comes from. You know, I, I, I don't know where your background is, but why do you do this and why are you looking out for this community? And, and perhaps because I'm a person in recovery from a substance use disorder, I'm somewhat sus not, not suspicious of you personally. I'm just suspicious of people who are not necessarily in recovery trying to help the recovery community because we know that the peer model is the best model. So what brings you to this work? Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I, as you ask, it's something that I haven't thought about it too much in, in some ways because I feel like a, a lot of this work has been um, a part of my life because of my parents' work for a long time. My father's a minister. Um, my mother wore all the hats in the nonprofit world. Um, she helped lead a, a halfway house for domestic violence victims and um, support refugee resettlement. And so I, I think that I was just raised to have an open door about just about everything um, and to make room for everybody at the dinner table. Um, and that uh, I think that so for that reason, maybe I, I just have a, a natural proclivity to work in working on issues with people who have been pushed out to the margins of our communities. Um, and I think that's that, that's probably the honest truth. Yeah, yeah I, I see one of our our, our founders and, and board members of the Global Recovery Movement, who's right north of you in Culpeper, Robert Legg. He, he's an incredible source of information. But he asked the question, what were the objections to the two bills, you know, that you put forward? Um, you know, I think that like a lot of things, sometimes the objection is just too much too fast that they were already making progress on cannabis and that was really going to be the centerpiece of, of drug policy reform and that we could come back at, at this work um, at a later date. I think it's hard to tell that to the many people who will be stamped with felony conviction um, in the coming year uh, when we had an opportunity to, I think, do what we know is right. But um, there was no objection to the study. I think everybody was on board with the idea that we should be digging into this more. You know, I, I'm, a, I'm a statistician by trade. I teach stats at the University of Virginia. So I, I always appreciate people's inclination to acquire evidence. But at the same time, I, I think a lot of the pieces of, of what I was proposing this time around um, could have moved based on what we know from other places that have gone before us. I mean, I think in particular, part of the bill that was just uh, straight silly that we couldn't move on this year was uh, ending, ending the, the penalty for um, residue crimes, um, for reclassifying um, residue as not possession like we do in so many places. And indeed, as we did um, in, in a lot of our national drug laws up until the war on drugs kicked off. And so- yeah. You know, I was reflecting back on one of Nathan's questions. I know one reason you're so passionate about this because you're a professor and you understand data and you understand statistics, you understand evidence base. So, so that's a special place to be because most of these politicians are doing knee jerk reactions, you know, politically motivated, not based on the science. So you're able to shed light on the science. So that, that's a, that's a real value to have in the game. Another one of our supporters, Michael McDermott, who loves McShen Foundation, by the way, he asked that question, what is the status on HJ 530? Is that something you happen to know? Yeah, so that bill um, will be moving to the Crime Commission for their their formal process. Um, you know, it, it's sad that the Crime Commission is the one that's tasked with doing this work. I think we all know that this should be more in the hands of, of treatment providers, but um, that that is where we send that work to because currently so much about addiction lives in our criminal code. Uh, but that work will be ongoing in the coming year and um, will hopefully turn around results for us before the next General Assembly session so that we can um, act on, on their good guidance then. Very good. Nathan, what are you thinking? Well, so what the time the Crime Commission will be tasked with looking into that. Do you have parameters set for what they are need to report back? Um, is there an open forum for the public to speak on what the public speaks and thinks about this? So uh, the the charge, like what they're supposed to dig into, is all there in the bill um, outlines. Um, what they're supposed to study. The Crime Commission does meet, and there are some opportunities for public comment then. 
Uh, I truth be told off the top, I don't know their upcoming meeting schedule, um, but I do know that you could Google it um, if you were yeah. online um, and, and find out your, um, those opportunities. But I, I think you're spot on that, you know, we need people um, to have, uh, live through all of these hurdles um, to, to talk about what they need most as opposed to just doing it from a distance. Excellent. One of the objections to um, to uh, uh, reclassifying or defelonizing, and, and, and let me put on the record, I, I definitely support defelonization. Um, but one of the objections that I hear over and over again is what happens to individuals if they don't get arrested? How do they get into treatment? What do you say when you hear that? Because um, that's a comment that's going to come up if this bill comes up again. What do you say to that? Well, you know, I think we have this chicken or the egg problem from some people's perspective that first we have to build up the perfect network of support services outside of our jails and prisons before we can begin to dial down what's currently happening in carceral facilities. Um, and I think that that's problematic for two reasons. It assumes that what's happening behind bars is working. Uh, and then separately, uh, just as a practical budget matter, a lot of the money that could be used to fund services outside of jails and prisons is currently being tied up inside of those facilities. And so it makes it very hard, I think, for government um, to expand funding for addiction and substance use um, just because we're spending so much money locking people up. And um, so I, I think that we, like a lot of other states, um, should be able to uh, look at what they've done, sort of take take the step in the direction of trust, of um, putting fewer people behind bars, and uh, in the process, uh, we'll be able to to move them toward other opportunities. In part because we'll be spending less money um, inside of our prisons and jails. But that you know that is one of the questions that the study is designed to answer, um, to really assess the the current landscape of those services in Virginia so that we can target more funding where it's needed. Let me, let me paint a, a quick picture here for the last, I'm going to say 50 years or, you know, our addiction epidemic has, has gotten worse. And now with fentanyl on the scene, it's like skyrocketing, but don't confuse fentanyl with the overall word addiction and substance use disorders. I'm talking alcoholism, uh, prescription medication, they're, although they're going down because of the crackdown on the pharma, but you still got, you know, the other drugs out there. But the, the epidemic's gotten worse all these years. Mm -hmm. All these years, America and Virginia especially has plowed damn near 100% of the resources into the same old systems, whether it be the community service boards, the, uh, the health system they have set up, the tax-funded health system, the criminal justice system, the industrial prison complex, the private jails. All these years, we've plowed all the, the money into what is 50% of the solution. Now, Dr. DuPont makes it very clear how valuable the recovering community is, the non-government organizations, the peer-facilitated groups like us, McShin, the sober home industry, all these other NGOs popping up. If we just put 20% of those dollars in the other 50% of the equation, which scientifically is proven to show greater than 50% of the results we're all getting, I mean, and I've been fighting this battle for 20 years. I don't know if you know much about my history. I go, I mean, I sat on a joint Senate House subcommittee for three years back in 09, 10, and 11. And we have cranked out so much evidence, so much data. And it's no matter what we do, they're not going to value us and fund us and let us let us show what we can do. So, and I see all this new money, you know, SAMHSA just doubled the um, block grant funding and it's all going to the same agencies as the epidemic gets worse. Somewhere in the mix, somebody down in general assembly, we, we need more than just a handful of leaders and champions. I mean, have you given thought to that? And then Mike McDermott asked again, how can we move that ball forward? You know, that that's a critical, you know, source of contention for us. You know, I really think that this is one of the biggest opportunities that we have for bipartisan compromise in Richmond. And I don't say that lightly. There are a lot of issues that do split straight down party lines that come across our plate. 
But I think this is one of them that that genuinely brings a lot of people together because they can hear and see exactly what you're saying. Um, and so, you know, I would just make sure that your delegate knows that this is a top priority for you, because I have been able to talk to colleagues of all stripes from every corner of the Commonwealth about this. And they understand that it's a challenge in their community that, it, you know, it takes different faces um, and, and uh you know, different, different trends in different places, but everybody has, has some flavor of it going on uh, where they serve. And so I, I honestly think it, the, the kind of good old fashioned, write your congressman, you know, talk to your rep uh, is what more of what's needed because I think that we have a lot of potential to come together here. Yeah. Well, Delegate Hudson, I, I do recognize you as a champion and I respect that and I value that. I've been going down in general assembly for 20 years. I mean, the way it works down there, I don't know if you notice or not, but they got all the different subcommittees. And on any given day, you're up against a subcommittee from a delegate from 200 miles away that could care less about you. So they're mm -hmm. going to do their special interest driven babies and they're going to ignore us. So a lot of this, it takes these delegates. You're correct. They got to pick up the phone and call these other delegates who are sits on these committees and, and say, look, you got to move this ball forward. You know, let more people take a look at it and quit killing these things in subcommittees. And that's, that's true, though. I will say one thing, which is that there are some things that changed overnight when Democrats took control in Richmond. I'm sure this is a, a nonpartisan pro project, but it is the case that criminal justice reform has changed dramatically with the leadership in Richmond. So yes, I, it has. My hat's off to the Democrats, too. I'll give you a lot of credit for that. You and the governor and, and the big blue wave, you have certainly delivered. But here we are. The funding is rolling, and they continue to ignore the valuable people in the community. And that's the part that really chaps my butt on a regular basis. Frustrates the heck out of me. And I'm cleaning my language up because this is a live podcast. But <laughs> But I mean, I'm seeing more of the same, and, and the Democrats now. Now you got a chance to really get it right. You know, you're doing good. Don't please, don't choke, oh man. You know, you got you got all that COVID money coming, and you know, where's where's the portion for these sober living organizations and these these percolating and emerging NGOs that are delivering the results in your own community? If you go to a CSB, you're going to get streeted. You're not going to get help that day. You come here to these NGOs, you, you get sober living that day. You get a detox that day. I mean, how hard is it to, to do the right thing, you know? Well, I hear you. I guess what I'm saying is that, you know, that everything was stuck until that that turnover in leadership happened. And now there is a long list of things to do on just about every front. And I'm not saying just justice reform. I'm right. saying housing and healthcare and education and transit. And part of the problem is we've got this part-time general assembly that only meets for a couple months every year. And so it it's seems like y'all meeting a lot here lately over and over and over. They call you back in the session. Yeah, they do. Though the other piece about that is that we're not actually meeting every day. Right. That's happening though. We were stretched out for four months we were only convening, especially the Senate, maybe once a week in there. Remember, delegates get paid 18 grand a year. Oh, so I don't know how you do it. I really don't, man. Yeah, yeah. So what it, what it means is all of us have another job. So, you know, I'm teaching full time. Right. Default, right. When we get together, we're only meeting for a few hours at a time because we all got to hold down the other gig that we do. Hmm. So I was just saying it, it may feel like we're meeting all the time, but we're like, that just was the the starting gun and the ending uh, of the race. We weren't actually meeting 24 seven in that period. Well, we're going to ask for $10 million for on the COVID relief funds to go to sober living, to go to the Virginia Association for recovery residents of which portions of that will go for the recovery program that the non-government organizations provide. So be on the lookout for that. We, we need you guys to rally and we, we don't need to hear, okay, we're going to give you $250,000. No, we need $10 million, you know, we, you know, you, people don't realize it, but in the Richmond area alone, we have over a thousand sober beds. We have six legitimate non-government recovery community centers. And, and that's one less jail we need in this area here. I mean, the money we saved since McShen started in 04, we have saved the state taxpayers over $200 million just in diversion to the Department of Corrections. So you guys want to make a ton of money in the future? Put us in the game, man. Reimburse us. It's, it's greater than the Trump stock market. I mean, this stuff is real what we're doing down here. 
Nathan, you got thoughts, I'm sure. <laughs> no, man, you, you, I, I'm, I'm so glad you're able to join the show today, John and Sal, uh, Sally. I'm going to call you Sally. You told me to call you Sally. I'm so glad you're here today. Um, Mike, Mike uh, McDermott, Michael McDermott says, speaking of budget, Northam administration just uh, announced yesterday an 11 plus billion financial windfall. Any thoughts on that? I'm not sure. What, I, I know Michael's more informed. Than I, I saw am. 500 million in, in the paper, but. Maybe it's eleven billion. Who knows, man? Yeah, eleven billion. I'm not sure about that dollar figure. I'm not sure that rings right to my ears. But um, you know, I, I do think it's the case that um, there are a lot of priorities that are going underfunded right now, and um, I think we it's our responsibility with both the federal stimulus money and with our state revenues to um, do good on a lot of things that have been put on the back burner for a long time. You know, I think about the recovery community. I think about um, the folks with developmental disabilities, you know, the, the wait list for Medicaid waivers is a mile long. There's a whole lot of people who have been told for too long that there's not money in the state budget for them. And I think that, you know, we have to do right by a lot of those people. Um, and that we we do have the funds to do it, and it's entirely a matter of willpower. You know, Patrick Jones, he, he asked a question, uh, are there any impact on drug courts or those CCAP programs? Is that something you're following? I mean, I'm sure they're raising hell. They might lose customers if they recover, so. Yeah, so that, that was a, one of the features of this bill that we were trying to um, begin to tackle, and there's a lot to be done there um, to, to address drug court and also the first offender statute. To, to get more serious about the fact that relapse is a part of recovery and that we are pushing a lot of people out of those more flexible options by making the consequences of tripping up so intense because you've got people who, you know, wind up with a more, more severe consequence than they started with um, if they choose to take what is supposed to be a hand up. Um, and so we, you know, we've got a lot of work to, to do there. And I think that's part and parcel of what needs to come out of the other side of this study. You know, let me let me reinforce something. Give you a couple talking points. Definitely defelonize drug use, simple possession. Definitely, you got to please get that done. And when the law and order guys complain about it, is a cudgel to get folks, you know, the help they need inside jails. Well, number one, not all jail programs are equal. There's really only a half a dozen decent ones, but you're still stuck with the felony. Number two, they. They are surrounded. Every addict I know that overdoses and they want to put them in jail, they're surrounded by little misdemeanor charges all around them. On you know, they they constantly can get these kids locked up on misdemeanors and give them give them a jail program, give them good behavior, time off if they attend the program. There's so many ways to engage these people and incentivize them without felonizing them and ruining their life. So, you know, the more these this knowledge everybody has, the easier it is and the simpler it should be to sell the hardliners on this, to, to retool the whole system. So, like I say, misdemeanors, if, if you got, if you look, you either go here to this recovery program or the treatment program, or you're going to go to jail and do your misdemeanor time. You're not going to be felonized. And while you're there, if you want to get half off of good behavior, you go to this great drug program we got in jail run by recovering people. That's, that's another key. You know, all these successful programs, most of them have peers involved and the reentry needs to be there. You go door to door, door from the jail to a loving, embracing, compassionate, sober living situation run by people in recovery that continue to pass on the hope shot, the vision and the pathway. So that's 50 percent reduction in recidivism, 50 percent reduction, probably in foster care downstream somewhere. And tremendous increase in public safety, but with the you know, God, I'm just I'm so glad to see the language in the discussion. But we got to get these hardliners across, you know, the the line here. Delegate, have you been watching what's been going on in Oregon, and have you any thoughts on that? They've just recently released the first wave of uh, of uh, cannabis. Uh, funding tax dollars to the organizations, the grantees. Um, any thoughts on on that? Have you watched what's going on there? You know, I haven't seen the grant process, but I do know that you know we're going to be watching Oregon closely every step of the way because they are further down this road of decriminalization than we are. Uh, so there's an awful lot to be learned from them, and and really from at this point states that are further down the road than we are all over the country. Well, yeah. well, one thing in Oregon we picked up from me and Nathan the other day, we had some of the 
some of the, uh, the the tip of the spear on the show who doing the recovery move movement in Oregon, and they made it very clear. They said, John, number one, we got all these sober home operators ready to take these kids in, and we can't get reimbursement. So all the money is going to these agencies. They're not going to the people doing the boots on the ground. Get them, get them off the street, out of the public safety theater of operation get them into the recovering community they're not being funded they're holding it up they're not funding the recovery programs run by the recovery people they got the infrastructure they and they got the ability to to scale up the capacity but the but the bureaucrats hijack the funding delay the game and in the meantime the epidemic gets worse and they had uh 450 tickets they wrote out since february 1st 100 tickets you know here you got to pay the 100 fine or else all 450 of them paid $100. Now, some people are going to look at that as that's not good. Wait a minute. If, if I had $100 and I was offered treatment or whatever, I'm going to spend my $100 on drugs. I will not go get help until I'm flat broke. And that's kind of how this works. So if, if you still got money to pay the $100 fine, you're probably not going to do anything but pay the fine. They're, they're, they're doing the engagement in the community. They're not doing it right. And the reason they're not doing it right because they're not funded. The reason they're not funded because special interests drive policies. And policies are driven by politicians who got to raise money and then they got to support the special interest of funding them. But I know that's not your story. That's not your case. But it, it's a great big vicious cycle that goes over and over and over again. But Oregon is important. They got a ton of money to help people, and they're trying hard, and they think they're doing a good job, but they're choking. And I would hate to see Virginia choke. Virginia don't have to choke. Virginia can get this even better and righter than any other state out there. And it begins with you got to look at the data. You're a data expert. The recovery results are off the scale fabulous but we do need to be funded we just cannot be we can't go much further unfunded so that's the solution and that's what dr du dupont makes very clear you know the, the answers are with the repeat the people in recovery that's your solution help those people and i can and i can back everything up after the show if you if you want me to send you some good stuff so um i'm reading what robert leg says over here he says do you know uh, do you know what has been the impact on drug courts in the other states that have defalonized drug possession? That's that's an interesting question, actually. I, um... you know, I you know I don't. Um, I'm not sure what Robert's driving at um, on the impact on the drug courts. You know, I what this the defalonization is primarily about the punishment on the back end. Is the is Robert? Are you asking about do you see more people using the drug court? I'm not, maybe I'm not quite following. Well, he's probably, he's probably, I would imagine drug courts nationwide are squirming, okay? Because of, if, if a whole new system emerges, it's kind of like the first thing with the Pony Express, you know, they did a great job building that, but then the telegraph came and then the trains came. And every time an industry emerges, an existing industry is going to get hurt. And that, I imagine drug courts, I don't know, I'm sure they got a great future, don't get me wrong. But, but we do got to get away from felonies, and we do got to provide services at, at the engagement level in the community, but we got to get the recovering people in these jails and prisons and, and driving those programs because we set them up to succeed, not to fail. And I got lived personal experience dealing with jails in Virginia, producing great data, great results, only to be sort of exited out of that space because of special interests, you know, so... We got we got good problems to have that can definitely be solved, but we got we got to really start putting our money where where the where the results are and stop constantly funding an antiquated system of care as the epidemic goes up and gets worse. I mean, somewhere in there you got to stop building battleships and build aircraft carriers. You know, somewhere in there you got to get away from mail and letters and just use your email. You know, that they're just. You know, there's a lot of promise here, you know, and, and, and we're all passionate about it. And I know you are, too. So a whole lot of people out there selling snake oil. You got to look out for that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I love that. Snake oil. I love it. Um, Stuff works in some cases. <laughs> but, <laughs> any, any thoughts on that, Sally? No, I, mean, I do think you're, you're right that there will surely be an impact on um, on our drug courts. Um 
if there if we you know do take this next step um and i think that we just you know have to keep moving in that direction we're making progress yeah and i i think whatever we do going forward as we as we reclassify as we defelonize because and let me tell you a little bit of my story um i was arrested on a possession charge in 2016 and my uh, uh the 251 the first offender status went out the window because i continued to use in pretrial so i became a felon as a result of that so so i have a very personal interest in this me but also this is the same story a lot of us here have or similar and you know i ended up getting sir, uh, sentenced to two years suspended but two years of prison time out of the possible 10 as you are aware um for that little tiny bit that i had on me and then i get violated again in in um uh, probation and the reason that this is important to me because it wasn't until I was introduced to recovery by other people in recovery. Now, for me, it was in the jail cell when I got arrested on, again, um, in probation. But at no point in pretrial was that ever offered to me or introduced to me. And in fact, I walked into this lit woman's pretrial office, and I was in Warrington. It's not where I'm from, but that's where I was. And I would walk into this woman's office every couple of weeks, and I would look the part, play the part speak the part, sound the part, and then I'd walk right out and I would do my drug of choice in the parking lot on the way home. Like I was able to manipulate the system. And she had no idea as I lost 45 pounds in front of this woman in three months. And 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 bless her heart, and I say that, but bless her heart, but it's like she had no idea what was going on. And if John had been sitting there, if Justin, our producer, had been sitting there, anybody who's listening that I can see name, if they, they'd been, if they had seen me, they would know exactly what was up with me. And mm -hmm. so that's where we need that peer support right off the bat too. Like I like I, like there, and we need it in the hospitals. We haven't talked about this much too, but you know there was a bill that went through last year, and then again this year. It's, it's like a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, where we're trying to get um, better systems in place in the emergency departments to handle substance use related emergencies. And we can't even agree on having an naloxone up given to individuals who come out, you know, with a, who overdose on opioid overdose. So we're really, really struggling here, and I'm glad that you're doing the work that you're doing, but we also want to make sure that like, we have the systems in place for where we are you know, right now. We have jail programs available, funded, available, you know, funding that non-governmental organizations like McShan, like True Recovery, like all the other organizations that are, that are good, valuable systems, you know, and, and not just throwing money, in, and I know CSBs are important, but not just throwing money at CSBs, which have bureaucracy layered by bureaucracy with individuals who have no lived experience and would rather spend $100,000 on a billboard than put beds where they need to. And this is something that we talked about at a, at a meeting months ago, or years ago. But so this is where we need to keep going. And I really appreciate the work that you're doing. We need more. You know, we need more. We need you. And I, I realized I was looking at your committees here. You're on the finance committee. That's very important. <laughs> and you're also on what well, communications, technology and innovation. Um, you know, we're looking for funding for our podcast. So, here, you know, yeah. um, but let me tell you where this goes. So we take this podcast right here and it gets converted into all these other platforms right now. But we give this to what? Paytel? We Paytel. We give Paytel. it to these uh, companies. That for free. Yeah, the free tablets in jails and prisons all across America. And uh, so if you're in jail or prison, you can be on your tablet. You can listen to, you know, gang banging music or whatever. But the data shows the inmate that listens to educational stuff on their tablets, recovery stuff, faith-based stuff, they have a much lower recidivism rate. Mm -hmm. Our last quarter, we had over 200,000 inmates use our recovery content inside jails and prisons and that's yeah. huge and we got people here at mcshin today that came from jails out of state because when they got out they wanted to come to mcshin uh, nathan went to jail in warrington that was a program we we donated to the warrington jail he met the peers there we opened up a recovery center one block from the jail so he went from jail to the recovery center and then he was able to come down to Richmond to the to the sober living, and now he's one of our most valuable and trusted employees here. And and this is how recovery works, you know. It's not everybody's story, but our success rates are much greater than anything else out there I'm seeing, and and that can be Virginia's story moving forward, and and it needs to be Virginia's story. So we know how to 
not only plug holes, fill gaps, but we, we can navigate these challenges that are going to come with the new legislation coming. We just have to be at the table to educate people and help shape policies. We don't get any meaningful role in shaping policies. Yeah, we get to petition our government. We get to freedom of, spre- of press, freedom of speech, but we're not, we got uh, law and order people making all the decisions about recovery. That's just not right. No wonder we, we can't get, get to get the play we need to get. You know, that's ridiculous. It's like asking Al Qaeda to teach Hebrew, you know. You, what do you what do you what do you think's gonna happen, you know? <laughs> that wasn't that was good. That, that was good. That was really good. <laughs> <laughs> um Patrick Jones up here. He says, my experience with the CSB and, and this, this, this is okay. You're familiar with step Virginia, right? And the same day access, right? They don't actually mean same day access. They mean same day assessment. And this proves it right here. My experience with CSB, my first appointment was available 70 days after my same day interview, 70 days later, I was not open to treatment anymore. You know, he went out and did some more research and I know Patrick and I know he's doing great right now. Um, in fact, I saw him a few hours ago, but you know, that's the same story we hear over and over and over again. Going to the CSBs, getting same-day access, except they're not. They're not getting the assessment. We get people here who call us at 7 o'clock at night. You know, I get a phone call. Hey, man, I'm ready to go. You know, let me, you know, and we got them in a bed right away. So, you know, that's, I, I know, I, I know that you've talked about CSBs in the past and somewhere in one of the bills, I know there was some support for CSBs and that's great, you know, but making sure that we, are going with the non-governmental organizations, these NGOs, like McShin and like other organizations that are doing this work and making sure that we're supporting the authentic peer recovery community, the you proven know, authentic peer recovery community. Yeah. How important, Delegate Hudson, do you think it is for a doctor to be educated about addiction? Do you think that's an important piece of their medical training? I mean, sure. I think that that's an important part of anybody's um, sort of awareness, but especially if you're going to be in a medical field, um, you know, I'm probably not the best person to comment about what exactly should uh, be required of medical training. But I I would sure be open to the idea that that's something we need to do a better job of preparing people for. Well, the answer is doctors, they get very little training on addiction and substance use disorders. Mm -hmm. I remember 20 years ago, we did a study and your, your average doctor in America got a two-hour training on alcoholism and and the class consisted of them going to an aa meeting you know so and and, you know politicians you know people in the general assembly there should be a they should let mcshin do like a 16-hour course if you're going to go down there and make laws that affect addiction and recovery you should attend a 16-hour either online or in-person training on what addiction really is what recovery really looks like and all the different aspects and i bet we get a higher level of quality laws and they should probably do that for the education for teachers and transportation and everything you guys vote on then but the way virginia does it they chop it up into committees they put all the lawyers you know in charge of all the jails and prisons and you know drug laws you know because they're the ones that's the big special interest group and so forth and so on so you see the picture I'm painting here. I mean, but there again, you're our champion. I love you. You're great. Okay. Don't take none of this personally. You know, we, we need more like you. Mm. <laughs> Can I get an amen? Amen. <laughs> amen. Um, I noticed uh, when, you know, doing my little research, I noticed that you have a, a uh, for the first time you have a Republican running in the 57th district in what, 16 years? Mm-hmm. Um, any any thoughts on on that? Any any. Any, uh, are you are you running scared, or you feel pretty comfortable with your district? Um, I mean, I think that he moved here maybe four months ago, so I'm not sure he feels comfortable with the district. Uh, sounds like a plan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it, truth be told, I, I think that the the best way to campaign is to try to serve well. Um, and so you know, I'm I'm mostly focused on trying to do do the job well and try to earn it back that way. Um, so. Amen. Yeah. Yep, you know, Mike Michael McDermott brings up another point. You know, I've only been clean and sober over 38 years, Delegate Huston, in case you didn't know that. Mike's got like 28 years clean, I believe. But ever since I got clean in 1982, we used to hold a lot of meetings in hospitals, you know. So when the, the new people would come, back then they had treatment centers in all the hospitals. 
you know, but wherever it is addiction, you want recovering people, whether it be hospital, jails, ambulances, in the community, in the courtroom, in the schools, PTAs, churches. You know, you want people to be loud and proud about their ability to help people. Well, over the years, they 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 just restigmatized it terribly, blocked us from everything. But you know, Mike keeps bringing up there's your play right there. The um, now, do you? have any uh like forecast uh, you're hearing me and nathan talk you're reading some of our our comments you're hearing some things are we able to get some thinking patterns going in your brain i know you got a brilliant great mind there i don't want you to get off the show the same person you come on the show i mean are you feeling anything about our discussion Sure. Well, it's always great to talk with you and I'm, I'm enjoying our time together for sure. You know, we've got a long runway between now and when the General Assembly reconvenes again. So now is a is a great time to take stock of, you know, what came out of the last session and, and what we can be doing in the months ahead. Well, you're going to meet in August about the COVID money, you know, how you're going to divvy that up and what the regulations are and the guidelines. And you, you're going to be allowed to carve out some money, send it over to the department make it flow through to the Virginia Association of Recovery Residences, which is an agency run by recovering people. And then we, you know, we decide how we're going to break it apart into the sober living, the recovery program, but all of that's going to be same day entrance into recovery house, same day seeing a doctor, same day getting in a recovery program. There's your differences, you know? So, you will have an opportunity in August, and I, and I hope you seize that opportunity. Truth be told, I don't have a seat on the Appropriations Committee, which will mostly do all of that packaging. So I will be less involved in that than you might think. But you can pick up the phone and call those people who do I, have a seat. I, I understand, sir. I'm not calling sir very often unless I'm getting a ticket or something. Sir, sign right here. How often do you get tickets, John? Not very not often. Very I'm often. an old man driver. <laughs> I think the last ticket I got was around Charlottesville, so I drive a lot better now. Um, <laughs> Robert Legg asks again, yes, uh, I wish you would take – this is this is actually really interesting. I, I know you're familiar with the Good Samaritan laws. I'm sure you are that have passed uh, in the last two sessions, um, in the last regular sessions. The Good Samaritan law still allows for prosecution of probation violations and causes doubt. Still causes doubt, which results in delays in calling 911 or not calling at all, and should be treated like a heart attack. Um, do you have any knowledge on whether I, I, I'm, I'm probably asking this question? You probably don't know, but do you, do you know anybody putting in the bill to to update this, or do you have any thoughts on that? It's a good question. You know, I, we've definitely made some changes to the Good Samaritan law in the last couple of years, and off the top, I. I can't quite catch um, what Robert was saying relative to the pieces that are already in motion, but it's, I think the, spirit, the spirit probation violations. So individuals would would not pick up necessarily a new charge, but they would, or they they, they won't necessarily pick up a charge, but they can violate on it's probation. Still, yeah, so, still a, a probation violation yeah. to be using the drugs and being in that situation. And what Robert, yeah, what Robert doesn't know, Virginia has a pretty daggone good Good Samaritan law. But Robert happens to know other states that have the best ones, and he'd like to see Virginia have the best Good Samaritan laws. And uh, they do have broader, you know, reaches with a whole lot less impact. And, and, and nobody's promoting or marketing the Good Samaritan law either. You know, that's a great law. Every drug user in Virginia should know about that, you know. But, but there again, no media play on that. I really haven't seen any newspaper or magazine print anything regularly look if you overdose and call 911 you're good you're not gonna get locked up you know it's one of you know it's, it's like some laws get passed like covid come along right every single day all day long the covid 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 get your shots they're free call up you know yeah that's a bad illness it's an epidemic a pandemic well so is addiction you know where, where's the correlation there in the two illnesses <laughs> Hello. 
He's a tough act to follow for me. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry for hijacking your show. You no, know what happens when you bring me on? Well, I bring man. you on because you bring the institutional knowledge. I know you've been going down for 20 years. If I sat here with uh, Delegate Hudson, we'd be just having a chat more than anything. And and so I appreciate you bringing the knowledge here. And, and I know, you know, I listened to the testimony earlier today. I listened to the testimony of the um, HJ 530. Um, and I, I listened to the facts that you brought out. And that, that, Encourage me because I, I, a, I know you're an, uh, I know that you do stats, um, but I also know that that you know what you're talking about, and I really admire that. Um, half of all new missions to prisons and jails have a substance use disorder. Uh, is that, I think that is that what that is? Um, mm -hmm. I can't read my own notes. Yeah, uh, if you're thinking about the pipeline of people going into those carceral facilities. Half of them are coming in because something drug related. Yeah. Yeah. 65 to 85% of individuals in uh, prisoner jail um, are, are with, you know, have a substance use disorder. Uh, increases risk of OD 100 fold for individuals coming out or in, incarcerated. Um, and I saw that. I've heard, I know that those first two weeks of individuals coming out is some of the most dangerous time. And I'll refer back to my own personal story. You know, I got out, I had just spent 50 days um, in a McShin program and I was released. And, you know, I, I, I made arrangements to meet with, um, <laughs> I made arrangements to meet with the person who had called the cops in the first place. So um, I still wasn't thinking 100% on this. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, I was a, I got out of jail. I went across the street to the McShin uh, building and talked to them. I made some arrangements, yada, yada, yada. I was mandated from Warrington. I was mandated to Richmond to come to the McShin program, right? But I went to my probation officer and they said, well, you can't get down there for 30 days. We don't really like those guys. But I said, but I'm mandated. Well, you need to take 30, 45 days. We'll figure this out. I'm like, you I'm go going to get hot. <laughs> you, yeah. you need to hang out with your old drug using buddies for 30 and, days. And, and sure enough, I got in the car with the people picking me up and I had stuff offered to me in the parking lot. You know, I got out of the car. I got out of the car. And the only reason I got out of the car, because I'm not from Warrington. I didn't. I had, you know, I'm 45 minutes from my mom who didn't want to talk to me anyway. The only reason I got out of that car was because that office was open. That door was unlocked and I could walk right in there and say, I don't know what I'm doing and I need help. And they knew how to help me. There was no judgment. There was no, like, what's your insurance provider? There wasn't, okay, we'll come back in 70 days. There was, we're going to help you. We're going to do it now. And the guy looked at me, it was April of 2018. The guy looked at me, he says, how are you with digging holes? And I'm like, I can dig a hole. You know, my whole life I'm digging holes. And he just took me over to his house. And you know what I did? I put a rose bush in his yard. He just had, I, 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 I dug the heck out of that hole, you know, but they helped me for a week before I could get myself down here, organized to Richmond. And I came down here for what I thought was a 28 day program. And that was a little over three years ago. So you see how that works. Um, but we need more of that. We need more of that support. And we need to make sure that in any way that we're defelonizing and we reclassifying that we tie that with the authentic peer recovery community as well so that we have actual access. We have accessible care right away. You know, so we're not just... We're not just making... We're not just killing people, really. Um, you know, we're giving people an alternative there. So uh, what else is... Uh, who... Who are who so, the other delegates in the House that are friendly toward you know what we're talking about? Are senators and delegates? Do, you, do, you, do we got a lot? Um, you know, I think that the the folks who are um, most friendly to all of this probably you know your usual suspects. Um, uh, I would think Delegate Rasul, Delegate Carter, Delegate Scott, Delegate Price. Um, I mean, I think just a lot of folks who um, are are generally on the side of of um, taking a fresh look at things. Um, but, you know, on on the Republican side, I think you see some good folks as well. I think. Um, uh, um, goodness gracious. Look at that. You can't think of one. <laughs> her, name, her name is just escaping me and I don't want to miss say it. Her first name is Carrie. And I can't. I, I was calling her. Coiner. Thank you. Coiner. Yeah. yeah no, I, was, Coiner I, wanted, I wanted to call her delegate. And then I was like, oh, goodness, what is Carrie's last name? Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, so hopefully, hopefully that's a good sign that I just. She think did the uh, she did the, the recovery high school two sessions ago. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, um, and then Senator Vogel who put in uh, uh, the the Good Samaritan law two sessions ago, and then it was a 
I forget who it was. That was a watered down bill, though. Well, it eventually got watered down, but her initial bill was actually right. helpful. Yeah, well, I know. I know uh, Senator Bell, Senator Boisco, Senator Morrissey. Oh, they're all crazy. just wonderful champions of these issues for sure. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think some Republicans will be drawn over, but that that sheriff's association they're pretty they're pretty strong, man. They they lean on those Republicans pretty hard. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, the um so moving forward, you know, you, you got time off to go do your day job, right? Go, you know, make some real money. I'm assuming, you know, the uh, folks like us, anything we can do to help you, you know, e- either with, you know, getting some good bills passed or need any help in the district. You know, how can we help you? Well, you know, I think you're doing it right now. You're making your voice heard. So it's very clear that, you know, you need to be the priority that you deserve to be. Um, You know, I I really do believe that uh, most of what changes, you know, issues in in enrichment is not data. Uh, It is real relationships with a representative who takes an interest in in your case. Um, And so I think especially going into this next year, you know, we're we're about to redraw all these maps for district lines in Virginia, which means uh, a lot of districts are going to change. A lot of people will be representing communities that maybe they didn't before. Um, and that'll be a great new time, I think, for a lot of representatives to go meet new constituents um, and start those relationships fresh. And so all it's just to say, I, I really do think that, um, you know, I think it's it's real relationships with real people that, that brought me into this work and probably the same for a lot of other folks. And so to the extent that you can take some time with your delegate in this off season when when we do have more time to just, you know, sit down, grab a cup of coffee, have a real conversation. I think it makes all the difference in the world. Let me ask you a real, a serious but fun question, okay? I'm going to ask three predictions, okay? Who do you predict will be the next governor, lieutenant governor, and attorney general? Just a prediction. Yeah, you know, I'm not a betting woman, and I, I don't take bets on things. That I didn't offer a bet. I didn't say you want to make a bet. I'm just saying, like, Gene Dixon predictions, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think that's my game. But, you know, I'm looking forward to whoever whoever finds themselves in those seats, making sure we keep working on this because it's got to happen. Wow, man. You, you know, okay, let's say we were past the primary. Who would you predict? Democrat, Democrat, Democrat? We got to see the candidate. I know that I'm going to work my tail off to make sure that that happens because I think a lot of this work stops cold in its tracks without it. I mean, you know, you said you've been going down to the General Assembly for, for 20 years. Um, yeah, I do know we would not be – legalizing cannabis right now um, and getting rid of the the penalty for simple possession for cannabis um, if we didn't have a democratic trifecta. You know, the way the way the cannabis laws were rolling out, I'm thinking they're going to drag this thing on for years. But then when Northam, you know, he stepped up, you know, he got some good stuff done July 1st. You know, I was I was pleasantly surprised on that one. And, and you know, next January, a lot of stuff can get done, too. Yep. But I, I do predict Democrat governor, Democrat lieutenant governor, Democrat AG. You know, I think that's a safe prediction. No, Virginia's pretty blue, isn't it? Wouldn't you say? Yeah, I mean, we've been elected Democrats now for a good long while. You know, I do know that um, there is a tendency sometimes for for things to swing back and forth. You know, if if you got a Democrat in the White House, it can be harder to elect one here at home. Um, so that's why I think you know you always run like you're ten points behind. Um, and we need to make sure that, that we don't rest on our laurels because there are, I think, I think especially this year, because it has been such a hard year for everybody. There are folks who are, are tired and, and kind of ready to unplug from politics and I don't blame them. Um, but I think that's, that's all the reason why we can't get caught sleeping. Um, yeah. so yeah. a lot of us are working real hard between now and November. You think we're going to be like mask free, COVID free back to normal over the summer? Not COVID-free, but mass-free, get back to some kind of normalcy. Well, I mean, I, I do think that, you know, the governor has in, has moved up the timeline for lifting COVID restrictions now to the last week in May, which is good. Um, I, I do think it's going to take us a while to, to get all the children vaccinated, which is a big part of, of how things keep spreading. Um, and I think the other piece is, you know, friends abroad still have real COVID crisis brewing. Um, and in a, in a pandemic... As long as it's still spinning somewhere, it can, you know, break out all over the world again. And so I always heard it was a three year cycle, you know, so we're like two years into it. We still got another year left. Be my prediction. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, it's it's the most important thing that all of us can do is go out and make sure that we get our shots. Um, you know, we're doing real well here in, in Albemarle County. We have the highest vaccination rate in the state. We've got almost 50% of our residents fully vaccinated. Well, that's pretty awesome. good. I'm going to spend time man. <laughs> yeah, very excited about that. So, you know, most places these days, whether they're the, the state-run clinics through the health districts or, you know, your, your local pharmacy, these days, somewhere near you is probably a place where you can go get your shot on a walk-in basis. So, you know, no more excuses about not being able to find an appointment. Somewhere there's a place you can roll in. All our staff got back. All they wanted it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and then all our participants, you know, we they, the health department has done a good job making sure yeah. we get vaccinated. So my hat's off in that little We area. actually have them coming here. They're yeah. coming here, I think, on Wednesday next week. That's just, awesome. Yeah. yeah. No, just, just for just just for the record, McSinn was open every single day during this yes. pandemic. We took new people in every single day. We were taking people to jail, wouldn't they? Every single day. Our CSBs were shut down. They wouldn't let people in the building, but we were taking them in. Church, churches kicked out their AA meetings, and they all come over here. So somehow we managed to navigate and mitigate pretty good. We're resilient yeah. folks. <laughs> Very, we used, they were using drugs every day, so we wanted to provide them recovery every day. Yes, you are. Yeah. Well, we, we, we are coming up to the to the hour here. Um, I, I, I do uh, want to give opportunities for you to finish, uh, to get final thoughts here. But I do want to have one. I want to add one word of caution that, that came up to me after the cannabis legalization happened. 25% and something to watch for going forward because it, it hasn't happened yet. But 25% of the tax revenue is slated to go to DBHCS to fund prevention and treatment through the CSBs. That's fantastic. My word of caution is this. If that money goes to CSBs in that time period, we don't want to see that money get cut from somewhere else in the budget. So what I mean is that, you know, just because they end up getting money from that tax revenue doesn't mean they should get lose money somewhere else. And, mm -hmm. and so so I have that in mind, you know, going forward that we need to make sure that they don't lose, you know, there's no penalty there. We want to make sure they're getting extra funding, uh, which will eventually, of course, come to NGOs as well. I mean, we're going to fight for our, our funding um, as well, but we need to make sure that they don't lose funding in the process. So with yeah. that, um, any final thoughts from, uh, from, from you that you want to add to this? Just to say thank you for everything that you are doing, you know, to, to make sure that you're talking with as many legislators as possible. I think people like you are perfect for being the tip of the spear um, to, to make sure that legislators understand why it's so important that we push all of this forward. It's overdue, but um, we're going to keep at it. Awesome. Well, I, I do want to add congratulations on, uh, you know, sometimes I get passionate, you know what I mean? I go off on a ramp, but you, you did wonderful being on the receiving end. I, I thank you very much for that. I appreciate that. Your stock goes up in my book. So if I was in your district, I'd definitely vote for you. Well, thank you. That's very kind of you. And thank you again for everything you're doing. I would vote for you too. I've got my voting rights back and thank you again. Your parents sound wonderful, by the way, and I hope that you're doing them <laughs> proud. Thank you for everything and for being here. And I hope that we continue talking, you know, throughout the next, uh, throughout the rest of the session, the summer. Yeah. Likewise. Um, enjoy it. I don't know where, where you are. I can't see your windows, but it's gorgeous and sunny here. So yeah. it's, very it's, it's golfing weather, <laughs> not podcast weather. Yeah. Bye-bye. Yeah. <laughs> right. Bye now. Bye. Thank you. <laughs> here at McShen, we believe in the McShen way, which is authentic recovery support service providers, people with lived experience, bringing that experience to those who need that lived experience in recovery. Here at McShen, we believe in many things to support our mission. We believe in women empowerment. What I love most about what we believe here at McShen is we believe in the authenticity of the peer-to-peer -peer approach. Here at the McShen Foundation, we believe in giving people opportunity. Here at McShin, we believe in the inherent worth and dignity of every person. At the McShin Foundation, we believe in helping people reach their full potential. Here at the McShin Foundation, we believe in multiple pathways to recovery. Here at McShin, we believe in placing principles before personalities to help spread hope. Here at McShin, 
we believe that recovery is possible and that any person seeking recovery can become a more acceptable, responsible, and productive member of society. Here at the McShen Foundation, we believe in self-discovery. Here at McShen, we believe in saving lives and offering second chances. Here at McShen, we believe you can do this. Here at McShen Foundation, we believe that we can only keep what we have by giving away, which is why we continue to help others like us seek and find recovery. Foundation and a woman in long-term recovery since May 27, 2007. I have not used drugs or alcohol. Thank you so, so much to the Richmond Times Dispatch and all of our voters for getting the Herd podcast. Those podcasts are amazing. Not only has it helped thousands upon thousands of people in their recovery, as well as family members, but it has helped me in my personal recovery. I get to listen to them now in my car through Spotify and iHeartRadio. And it's just really, really important for us to be innovative in the addiction field and the recovery community. So when COVID hit, we had to be innovative. You know, we really had to think of like, what can we do to reach people that cannot go to 12-step meetings? smart recovery, faith-based, whatever, um, that we're shutting down constantly. So we were innovative here at McShen. Let's start podcast. So with Todd, John, Alex, um, and some other staff, you know, we all just kind of jumped in who can do what. And um, with Todd's lead and John's lead, the podcasts have been amazing and we're still doing them today. So I want to thank you for all of your votes and all of your energy and all of your support of our mission of healing families and saving lives. Thanks.